0: And Jason, as we know, it's a health crisis that has created an economic and market crisis. For more on that and what the Fed is doing and will continue to do, Bloomberg News international economics and policy correspondent Michael McKee spoke earlier to Eric Rosengren, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston.
2: We welcome Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren to Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Thank you very much for joining us today. The Fed has gone big and fast with rate cuts and lending programs, and now you're going to be standing up a big lending facility. When you consider everything you've done and what you see in the economy, what are you thinking right
3: now? So let's start where you began that, and that is with the rate cuts that we did at the emergency meetings earlier in March. So we reduced the federal funds rate by 150 basis points. Normally, we would expect that to flow through to other financial markets pretty seamlessly and you would see borrowers, both individuals and firms, uh, seeing lower costs as they tried to borrow funds. Unfortunately, the plumbing uh, in the financial system uh, was overwhelmed by the number of people trying to sell whatever assets they had and get into cash. And so some of the interest rate reductions that we did, which are primarily at the short end of the market, hasn't perfectly gone through to the rest of the market. These facilities that we're setting up are intended to, in effect, getting the plumbing better. So the New York Fed has been buying mortgages and Treasury securities. Um, I'd say the Treasury securities market is operating reasonably well. The mortgage market is operating much better than it operated a week or two ago, um, but still is not by any means all the way back. Um, Some of the commercial paper markets, some of the shorter-term markets are seeing uh, margins come in, which is a very good sign. It means that the lower interest rates are starting to be passed on to uh, firms and households. But um, I think it's going to take some time. So the primary goal of what the Federal Reserve is doing is trying to uh, reduce the amount of spillovers that occur. So there's not much we can do about the um, health crisis that was created by COVID-19, but there are things that we can do to limit the amount of spillover to financial markets, and I think mm-hmm. the fact that we quickly got our facilities up and there's still more facilities coming uh, has helped in, in reducing the amount of financial spillover, uh, but not completely eliminated it.
2: Well, the Boston Fed runs the money market facility. Last week, you provided more than $30 billion in that market. How, how is that one working?
3: I think it's working pretty well. So um, it, by its name, uh, the Money Market Liquidity Facility uh, clearly we're focused on money markets. There are different kinds of money market funds, and the ones that are government-backed really have had inflows, not outflows, and have experienced no problems at all. A second set of money market funds are the prime money market funds, which borrow high-grade corporate paper. And to the extent that Um, Corporate paper wasn't trading because people were trying to get into cash. Uh, It was very difficult for money market funds that were prime money market funds to get their required liquidity as people were trying to get into cash. Similarly, there are um, uh, municipal uh, money market funds focused on the tax-exempt sector. Those are mostly uh, to retail, so it's mostly individuals that are involved in that. And municipal debt was not trading very actively either. So I think our facility has helped in bringing those margins down. Uh, we have, uh, for the most part, seen the outflow from prime funds and municipal fund funds uh, flattening out and uh, in some instances actually starting to increase again. So our primary purpose was to make sure that uh, money market funds didn't get to the point where they had serious liquidity problems, and I think that goal has largely been achieved to date. Do
2: you have any uh, details yet on how the corporate lending facility and the Main Street lending facility will operate, or even when they will begin to operate?
3: So the commercial paper facility should be up and running relatively soon. Uh, The corporate facilities that are more focused on uh, investment grade corporate debt of a somewhat longer term, going to take a little bit longer. And the main street is still in the design phase. So um, it's a complicated facility to appropriately scope. So I think it's still going to be another couple of weeks.
2: Do you worry that they won't be up and running in time to save a lot of businesses?
3: We're doing these facilities as fast as we can. And uh, like every organization, we're dealing with a lot of people that are working remotely from home. Um, And in addition, we need to make sure that uh, banks and other organizations understand what the nature of the facility is, get paperwork in that's necessary to run them. So unfortunately, these facilities do take some time. We're doing it as fast as possible. Um, Hopefully, we will have the facilities up and running to help a large number of firms over time.
2: Perhaps anticipating uh, an economy in free fall, you called last month for the Fed to have the legal power to buy equities. Do you still feel that's necessary?
3: So uh, my previous speech just talked about the ability to do open market operations. And um, right now, for open market operations, we can only purchase treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities that don't have any default risk. If we wanted to very quickly enter these markets, we would have to have the capability that many other central banks have, which is to purchase, for example, um, high-grade corporate debt directly for open market operations. I think it actually would be useful to have that capability during a period where the country's experiencing an emergency. Uh, That would actually require an act of Congress, so that's not something the Fed can do. As a result, we're trying to do things through uh, facilities. These facilities require getting special-purpose vehicles set up and having a lot more paperwork than directly purchasing securities. So that's one of the reasons for the delays. If we had the capability during an emergency to buy a wider set of assets, then we would be able to start uh, purchasing things much more quickly.
2: Well, you are in effect buying corporate bonds and lending to investment grade companies, but uh, there's a debate. Should you consider less than investment grade businesses or even leverage loan funders with the money that you'll get from the treasury from this new rescue package?
3: Well, I think our focus first has to be opening up markets where people are very creditworthy and where the likelihood of loss is relatively low, but where trades are not occurring. So I think we need to focus on those markets first. Uh, It is harder to structure a facility with enough Treasury backing as you get to greater risk securities. So even though the Treasury as a result of the new legislation, has a much more capacity to backstop uh, Federal Reserve facilities. I think it's important that we focus on high-grade markets first, see how much uh, Treasury capital gets used up for those facilities, and then over time think about whether there should be further expansion.
2: I know that uh, in a situation like this, you're worried about putting the fire out more than how much damage the water may do, but with the Fed's balance sheet over $5 trillion now, how big do you see it getting, and is there an upper limit, a point at which there might be unintended consequences, as you found last September when you were shrinking the balance sheet?
3: Well, my hope is that if we're effective, some of these facilities won't have to uh, do as many purchases. So the goal is to bring in some of the spreads for borrowing. We've already seen some of that uh, spread compression, particularly at the short end of the market. So, for example, the facility that Boston is running, the money market facility, we have seen uh, the flow into the money market facility has come down as the spreads have come down in Uh, the municipal market, the commercial paper market, and for um, bank CDs. So that's a positive sign. Our goal isn't to expand the balance sheet. Our goal is to make sure that uh, markets start operating in a more effective and efficient way.
2: Nobody working means no tax revenue and big shortfalls for states and cities. You mentioned uh, buying muni paper. Now that you've got congressional permission and encouragement, to buy muni bonds, how far should the Fed, the monetary authority, go in financing governments?
3: So we obviously have to be careful about that. Uh, We're focused on high-grade municipal debt at this point. Um, I'm very comfortable with us buying high-grade municipal debt and making sure that market functions well. Uh, Also, an awful lot of retail investors that invested in money market funds that were focused on buying municipal debt want to be sure that they're able to get their funds out, I think that is uh, completely appropriate.
2: What are CEOs and even the mom-and-pop stores in your district telling you now?
3: Well, unfortunately, uh, a lot of those organizations have laid off a significant amount of their hourly workforce and frequently uh, a relatively significant part of their salaried workforce. Um, I would say that is particularly true when you think about organizations that have been severely impacted by the nature of this public health crisis. So uh, retail, particularly to the extent it's stores that are being closed down, restaurants, the same thing to the extent that they can only provide takeout or are not providing uh, any services, anything travel related. So in those areas, the layoffs have been quite substantial. I am expecting initial claims to continue to go up. Uh, quite dramatically. And I would expect that the unemployment rate would rise quite rapidly as well.
2: Do you have a number on unemployment or or one for GDP?
3: So I would focus that our models are not particularly accurate. Um, At this stage, uh, we rely on models that primarily use historical data. Um, The last pandemic was uh, hundred more than a hundred years ago so that's not in our database so the ability for us to use our traditional statistical models um to get the kind of accuracy we would normally have don't have the history of these kind of events so i would take any forecast at this stage with a large grain of salt and i would also add that a lot of the forecasting is tied to how significant the social distancing works in enabling people to come back to work and for people to be healthy. Um, those are still in the early stages of understanding how successful we're going to be with that. But I would expect that uh, it's quite likely by the end of this quarter that we'll see an unemployment rate. That's probably going to be north of 10 percent, um, hopefully not a lot higher than 10 percent. But I think it's, um, that seems ballpark Uh, reasonable to expect. I think the bigger issue is whether we're able to contain problems both in the public health sphere and also the financial spillover sphere uh, to make sure that that unemployment rate doesn't stay as elevated over time.
2: One last quick question. Uh, You're going to have perhaps uh, trillions in lending to American companies, big and small, and uh, that'll be at near zero rates. Are you ever going to be able to move rates higher given the risk to borrowers or interest rates now, for now at least, finished as a Fed tool?
3: Well, I think uh, the federal funds rate is now as low as it can get without going negative. My own personal view is that we should probably avoid having uh, negative short-term interest rates. Um So that vehicle, I think, we will not be able to use in the near term. But these facilities are providing a significant amount of stimulus. The purchases of long-term treasury and mortgages are providing stimulus. So we're bringing long-term rates down. Um, But there are limits to how much these programs uh, will be able to get the economy running. And some of this relies on fiscal policy being effective. So we just had a very large bill passed. Um, It wouldn't surprise me if we're going to need more fiscal stimulus, given the nature of the shock.
2: Eric Rosengren, the president of the Boston Federal Reserve Bank, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Nice talking with you, Michael.
1: And that was the interview that our own Michael McKee conducted earlier today with Eric Rosengren, the president of the Federal Reserve
4: Bank of Boston. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
0: All right, joining us uh, in just a moment, we're going to check in with the CEO of CVS Health Corporation. Keep in mind, they're on the front line seeing the impact of the virus uh, first and foremost. We do want to welcome all of our viewers on Bloomberg Television. This is Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, And let's bring in Larry Merlot. He is president and CEO of CVS Health Corporation on the phone from Moonsocket, Rhode Island, where the company is based. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. We do hope you, and your family are are doing well?
5: Uh, Carol, we are, and thanks for asking, and thanks for having me.
0: And and as I mentioned at the top, you guys are on the front lines. You are seeing this firsthand uh, and dealing with it. Your workers are. A lot has been written about, and rightfully so, about those frontline uh, workers. You've got about 300,000 colleagues across all 50 states, also Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C. Tell us a little bit about your workers uh, and how they are faring and what you are doing to ensure that their health is not compromised.
5: Well, Carol, we are in a unique position to help address the pandemic, uh, given our physical presence in communities all across the country and the ability to reach uh, millions of consumers with local solutions. There's no question the health and safety of our colleagues and the customers that we serve is our number one priority. And, you know, we're taking the necessary steps to ensure uh, their well-being. And I I could not be more proud of the work that they're doing. There is a strong purpose uh, in our colleagues wanting uh, to play an important role in helping their communities manage through this. And, you know, every day we ask ourselves the question, you know, is there more that we can do? And, and that mindset has led to several actions uh, focused on uh, access solutions as well as the safety and health of those we're serving.
1: Well, Larry, tell us about some of those, because as you alluded to, and as we all know, this is a fast-moving situation. feels like every day, as you say, uh, presents new challenges. What are some of the steps that you've taken in the more recent days to sort of ensure worker safety specifically?
5: Yeah, uh, certainly, as I just mentioned, none of this happens without the extraordinary commitment of our employees. And, you know, we have done a number of, of things to uh, provide some peace of mind and, and help them navigate uh, through these times. And, you know, we're providing cash bonuses to our pharmacists, to other healthcare professionals who are on the front lines, our store associates and managers, and, and other individuals that, you know, are, are important in terms of their work being site-based. Uh, you know, we have been launching a new offering to help employees that, you know, have dependent care needs. Well, providing sick leave to part-time employees for the duration of the pandemic. And, and like many others, uh, we have been working around the clock to provide uh, PPE and other safety measures, in, including protective panels at our pharmacies and our you know, front store checkouts, uh, you know, just to name a few things. And, uh, and again, I, I couldn't be more proud of the work that they're doing.
0: Yeah, and, and um, from what I'm hearing is, because I know you guys are going out, um, Larry, as well, and, and you're looking to hire, I think, about 50,000 full or part-time workers just to meet demand because you've got delivery, in-store, distribution jobs that need to be filled because of the rise in demand that you're seeing.
5: Well, Carol, that, that's right. We announced uh, a, a goal of 50,000 full-time, part-time, and temporary roles across the country. That that includes some open job requisitions that we had. You know, but it also includes making sure that we're providing you know our frontline workers uh, the relief that they need. And you know, we've been working with uh, with companies uh, you know across the country. You know, companies uh, largely in you know travel, hospitality. Uh, in terms of transitioning employees, uh, you know, that makes up a lot of uh, the temporary staff. And, you know, over the past week, we've probably hired about 5,000 employees. We've expedited uh, our hiring as well as our onboarding process. And, you know, we've gotten tremendous cooperation from those employees. And look, it's it serves a need for us during this period of time. Uh, you know, they want to continue to work. And, you know, and I'm sure as their companies uh, you know, we get past this pandemic and their companies get things back online. They'll, I'm sure there'll be an opportunity for, you know, those temporary workers to right. you know, go back to the companies that, uh, you know, that they're committed to.
0: And, Larry, it sounds like then for all of your existing workers going into this virus that you are keeping everybody employed. And they're, and so you're taking care of those workers. They will continue to get a salary. Um, they will continue to get paid. They will continue to get health care. These are your workers.
5: These are our workers, Carolyn. That's absolutely right. You know, our workforce is approximately 300,000 across the country. About 100,000 of those uh, colleagues work uh, in office-based locations, and you know, our technology team has also done a wonderful job. We have about 80% of those, you know, office-based workers who are working remotely. The balance, you know, they uh, they make sure that the lights are staying on for you know our call mm-hmm. centers as well as our stores and You know, that leaves about 200,000 colleagues who are, you know, front lines. And, uh, again, they're doing terrific things in, in, in supporting the needs of our clients and customers.
1: And so, Larry, just staying with the the workers uh, for a second, what what have you what are you hearing back from them in terms of what they're seeing in the stores? You know, as as you have mentioned, I mean, you guys have eyes on this in ways that that many don't. I mean, there are numerous CVS's in my community, I think in Carol's as
5: mm-hmm. well.
1: What are they saying back to you in terms of what they're seeing in the stores?
5: Well, Jason, they're first of all they're greatly appreciative, uh, you know, of the role that you know that we're playing and. Yeah, I think you touched on this just a minute ago. You know, one of the things that we've done for our customers is, you know, to increase access to medication, uh, we have waived charges for home delivery of prescriptions and uh, related products, as well as laxing uh, the limitations in terms of, you know, people getting prescriptions uh, refilled early, especially those with Uh, chronic disease who are on maintenance medications. And, you know, we've seen a tremendous increase uh, in the utilization uh, and the need for home delivery. You think about, you know, seniors not wanting to go out of their home, and, you know, they're appreciating that service. Uh, You know, certainly we've seen a spike in in our front store uh, products, especially the, you know, the cleaning, uh, you know, the sanitizing, you know, wipes. And, you know, our supply chain team is doing a great job in terms of uh, working creatively and fast and furious, uh, working with suppliers to, you know, keep our shelves stocked. And, uh, you know, and we've also done things in terms of increasing access to virtual care uh, by waiving telemedicine fees, encouraging patients uh, to utilize that available resource. So, uh, you know, it has, uh, you know, I, th- I think it's been a very rewarding experience for our frontline associates because they've, uh, you know, they've gotten a lot of positive feedback from those that they're serving.
1: And Larry, on on the point of pharmaceuticals and and folks stocking up on prescriptions, we certainly have heard about that uh, anecdotally. Are you experiencing any shortages on that front in terms of medicine specifically? We all know about shortages of you know toilet paper and other sundries, but when it comes to medicines, are you seeing any shortages in the system at this point?
5: No, it's a great question. And and with respect to the pharmacy supply chain, we have not experienced any disruption to date. You know, we have been in in constant contact with our suppliers. You know, they tend to carry about a three to six month supply. And, you know, you think about prescriptions that are dispensed today across the country, about 90% of all prescriptions are generics. And you know, we have the size and scale with our partnership with Cardinal Health in the creation you know, of a company that is called Red Oak Sourcing. And as a result, we have been able to uh, diversify our generic supply chain so that we are not dependent on any single manufacturer for a product. So uh, I, I think Americans can be reassured that you know, the pharmaceutical supply chain is in good
6: shape.
0: Well, and that's and that's good to know and I, I you know I, I am also curious, Larry, um, and I think our audience is too about what kind of increases you're seeing in demand from customers overall um, at you know you mentioned you know pharmacies uh, and prescriptions, but what about at the stores overall and, and is demand tapering off at all?
5: Well, Carol, keep in mind that in the pharmacy and as you look at uh, our retail stores about seventy five percent of the business that we do comes out of the pharmacy so mm-hmm. You know, much of that spike in demand has been, you know, people getting their prescriptions refilled earlier uh, instead of, you know, later this month or next month. You know, and by the way, we think that's a good thing. We do not – one of the things that that will really compound the health crisis is if all of a sudden – you know, people with hypertension or cardiovascular disease or diabetes stop taking their medications as prescribed, and, you know, we want to make sure that they're staying adherent to those medications. So we're seeing a lot of that spike in volume is really, you know, more pull-forward activity. And, you know, as I mentioned... The, so it's the tapering... That is it
0: safe to say then it's tapering off a little bit at some of your stores, is it kind of after that initial rush?
5: Yeah, I would say, Carol, in, in some of the hot markets where, uh, you know, we have shelter-in-place uh, orders... Uh, We are seeing, you know, volume begin to taper off, Uh, you know, and in the front store, there's no question that we saw demand on paper products, cleaning supplies, and, you know, people ensuring that their medicine cabinets are stocked. But, you know, again, you know, pharmacies continue to, you know, remain open to, you know, fulfill vital needs for the customers that we serve.
1: So, Larry, let's talk a little bit about testing. That obviously is very front of mind for everyone as we try and assess this virus. It's spread. I know that you and others have committed to do some testing in in parking lots and, and elsewhere. Help us understand where we are in that, because by some reports, you've got one open, I believe, in Massachusetts. Presumably there's more to come, but help us understand the rollout here.
5: Yeah, Jason, we have worked closely with uh, the federal and state officials, and, and to your point, we opened, a, opened uh, a testing site in the parking lot of a CVS pharmacy in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, and, and there, there have been very, very important learnings that have come out of that. Uh, you know, today we're, we're doing about 150 uh, tests per day. Uh, it is largely, you know, targeting uh, healthcare care workers and uh, local first responders, uh, I think one of the important learnings that we got, you know, you think about the size of a of a CVS pharmacy parking lot. We have one drive-through location, and, you know, one of the important learnings was, you know, think about what we can do if we're in a larger parking lot with many of the other uh, facilities that are closed and the ability to have, you know, three or four uh, drive-through lanes and to be able to, you know, uh, exponentially do more tests. I think the other thing that is important is, as we've seen in recent days, uh, you know, through the FDA's approval of point of care testing, you know, and the Abbott product, you know, that is going, to, we're going to start seeing that in market, I believe, later this week. So, you know, we are now working with state and local officials in terms of how we can work together, you know, how we can get a local, uh, you know, testing site up with multiple drive-through lanes and, you know, in a much larger parking lot and really focus on, the point-of-care capabilities where we can do many more tests, anywhere from 500 to hopefully uh, 1,000 a day, and those tests will provide for a more immediate response where individuals being tested will know uh, you know, within you know, hopefully an hour or less than an hour in terms of the results of that test. So, so that's the work that we currently have underway.
0: So, Larry, just clarify for me, because I know Jason and I were talking about this um, earlier today to just kind of get a feel. So you've got... The one center in shrewsbury great right? the virus testing facility and you've also um, opened up some parking lots correct uh into secure testing sites is can you give us an idea of exactly how many that you've got and what's the plans to open up even more i know the administration has been supportive of you and target and walmart opening up more test facilities and i'm just curious what are your plans to expand them and and, and are you still getting support from the administration
5: yeah it, it... Carol, that we are uh, we are continuing, uh, you know, that process. And as I mentioned, you know, we are transitioning to more of the point of care testing because of, you know, the capabilities that brings for more tests per day as well as more immediate results for those that you know are being tested. And you know, we hope to have uh, you know several of those uh, testing sites uh, stood up early next week.
0: Okay, and, and that so, and that's for everybody, not just healthcare workers, and, and but that's for everyone to access.
5: Yeah, Carol, the priorities will continue to be for uh, okay. the healthcare workers, the first responders, and you know the, the the details around that, as well as how we can begin to test more broadly. Uh, we're working through those with state officials as we speak.
1: Well, and, Larry, I'm, I'm glad you brought up state officials because, you know, one of the things that we're certainly learning, and I know you know it even better than we do, is this is very uneven in terms of its spread across the country so far. And, and I do wonder what you're learning from that perspective because, again, as we've been talking about, you have eyes on the ground in a way, uh, in, in a very specific way as it relates to people's health, that, that few do. Uh, help us understand what you're seeing sort of nationwide and, and the response as you assess it uh, state to state.
5: Well, I I think there's no question that, you know, as you you look at the data, and, you know, certainly uh, you've had reports and and have had the experts be able to speak to that firsthand, that, you know, the shelter in place uh, in, you know, those geographies that uh, began earlier, uh, it appears that it is beginning to, you know, make a difference. Uh, And, you know, and I think what we're seeing is, uh, you know, across the country, some you know, unevenness, if you will, in terms of, you know, those uh, shelter-in-place orders, you know, actually having an impact in the communities. Uh, And, you know, again, you know, we are working with uh, the local officials in terms of, you know, how we can be an important part of that solution in terms of getting that message out, Uh, you know, ensuring that, you know, one of, we were talking about our, our employees, our colleagues earlier, and, you know, we're certainly emphasizing uh, that if you don't feel well for any reason whatsoever, stay home. Uh, you yeah. know, the, the additional elements that we have put, you know, into our pay and benefit programs do not put them in a position where they have to make that choice between, you know, I need a paycheck or, you know, should I stay home? And, you know, we're telling them to stay home. Uh, you know, in uh, in some of the hot markets, we have begun to – Uh, You know do temperature checks with infrared thermometers and you know those will be rolling out to all of our stores and and call centers You know over the next uh, probably seven to ten days, you know as an added measure of safety
0: Well those reassurances as workers and I think that's great to hear from you as a leader of a well-known company a big company Because I think that's what individuals and workers certainly at this point um, Larry are looking for one final question how do you see the coronavirus pandemic ultimately changing the world? You know, when we come out on the other side of this crisis, what do you think is going to be the most important in your, in your view, kind of underappreciated way that the world will be different?
5: Well, you know, Carol, it's a great question. And I think one of the things that I'm proud of, uh, you know, uh, of my colleagues is, you know, you think about all the things that, you know, that we're doing and, you know, we're not going to let perfection get in the way of progress. And, You know, and I think as this crisis is upon us, people are looking for uh, solutions locally every day, uh, whether it's in-home services, uh, the increased utilization of telemedicine. uh, You know, we talked a lot about testing, the local sources for testing, and, and we've also seen Uh, the relaxation of some of the regulations so that healthcare professionals like pharmacists and nurse practitioners can practice to the top of their license, providing needed services and counseling for those we serve. So, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, when this is behind us, all the things that we're doing today that we weren't doing 30 days ago will be evaluated in terms of you know what did make a difference, and you know, and I think as we sit here today, we can all use a little bit of optimism. And you know, we've heard recently that you know there's a tremendous amount of work being done to you know to find the vaccine. And you know, and I'm confident that our researchers will bring that solution. Uh, and if we can fast forward, you know, let's say 12 months, you know, uh, and let's think about now we have a vaccine and. Uh, you know, and now we have millions of Americans looking for access to that vaccine. And I believe that our pharmacists and nurse practitioners that are in communities all across the country will be at the center of that access solution.
1: Well, Larry Merlot, we really appreciate your time and Thank the work so that much. you and your team are doing, you know, as you yeah. said, and as we've been talking about all along, uh, very much on the front lines. I know key in, in our little community here in the suburbs of New York, and I think uh, people share that view across the country. Larry Merlot is the president and CEO of CVS Health, joining us on the phone from Rhode Island. We really, really appreciate the time.
4: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: Another element of the coronavirus, we've been talking about this on air, it's become clear, though, is um, about the importance of mental health uh, and mental health care during this crisis. But as a story in the magazine points out, that, Industry and in that group certainly not prepared for it as well. Here with that story, Cynthia Coons, U.S. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, she's on the phone in New York, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the phone in Brooklyn. And Joel, it is something Jason and I have been talking about a lot with the medical community about the importance of, uh, you know, it's not just about your physical health and avoiding getting the virus, um, but it's also about your mental health, especially as more people are isolated at home.
4: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, this is a line of reporting that Cynthia has been working on um, for uh, the magazine over the course of the last year. And, uh, you know, we had never had the foresight to know that something like this was going to happen. But we did have the foresight to say, wow, we are really not prepared in this country for mental health crises. And what we've seen over the last decade and change has actually been this whole erosion of it. Uh, of any sort of mental health, um, and it goes from access to benefits from an, um, from from an insurance, um, and that's sort of exactly why when um, somebody like Cynthia raises their hands and says, "Hey, this COVID nineteen this COVID nineteen thing, it's going to be a serious problem for mental health as well." You kind of makes you sit up and listen. So, Cynthia, what was the what's the wrinkle of to this that you find especially interesting? Well, there's
7: a couple dimensions to it. So the first sort of platform wide sort of kind of initiative has been getting people onto telehealth and telephone based therapy. And while that sounds simple, there's been a lot of regulations that have made that really difficult. Traditionally speaking, insurance hasn't always covered it. Um telephone therapy, I don't I believe telephone based therapy is not HIPAA compliant. So there are reasons why People haven't really always been able to do therapy remotely, at least not in get, getting insurance covered for it. So, for starters, insurers have jumped in really quickly here. Some of them have made, have made teletherapy free. They've also allowed, and as well as the U.S. government, has said they're not going to enforce the HIPAA rules anymore for the perspective of people being able to get the care they need. But that's a patient population that would be seeking care anyway. I think where it starts to get a little bit murkier are people who maybe start to discover some some issues they're having as a result of the social isolation and the stress of living with and thinking and contemplating the other knock-on effects of of COVID in their lives. And then people who need more serious high high levels of care, like hospital-based care, they're going to be really at a disadvantage in this situation in terms of getting into the treatment centers and help that they need.
1: Well, Cynthia, you know, one of the things you do, you know, right at the top of the story, which I really like, is you put sort of a name on it. And candidly, it it makes me feel better uh, reading it. And I do think part of this isolation, and we read this all the time, and part of fighting this isolation and the knock on effects of it is knowing that what is happening to you is also happening to other people. And this notion of adjustment disorder is a really important one to understand. Tell us a little bit more uh, about what that is. Is clinically?
7: This is a really interesting finding for me. So when I talked to different people throughout, therapists, psychiatrists, this was a name that came up um, time and time again, and it's adjustment disorder, like you say. And basically, it describes the symptoms, the anxiety, um, the sleeplessness, um, the feeling of sort of just kind of feeling disoriented in your own surroundings, this idea that It's really hard to sort of tamp down on the anxiety, even if you're trying through normal mechanisms that you might to rationalize your situation. And the reason is what one psychiatrist explained to me was that your brain is wired to use past experiences to predict the future. That's how you operate. That's how we get through every day of our lives. And right now, the future is constantly changing and we have nothing to draw on to predict how things are going to go for us. And so it was very interesting. I did another story about women in New York who might not be able to give birth with their partners or spouses and the state stepped in and, that is no longer the case, but it was very interesting talking to women in that scenario because they said one day they were told that they could only have one person in the room with them during labor delivery, and that was one thing to get their head around, and then a couple days later, they were told they could bring no one to labor and delivery, and that was a whole new thing to get their head around, and I thought that was really emblematic of what the doctor was describing, that you start to get to deal with one set of circumstances, but then the circumstances change again, and we might see this in trying to get toilet paper or groceries or figuring out how to educate our children when we can't get them to school or can't get them to online learning modules but each day is bringing new obstacles and new numbers and new dates and everything's getting pushed out in the future and so this idea that you might be struggling with your inability to sort of cope with your surroundings is actually that actually makes sense and it's actually for a lot of people you'll be able to work through it with your own coping mechanisms but it's for the people where
0: this goes on longer and leads to more sort of problematic feelings that you need to seek help well, and what's interesting is, and in we've been having this conversation a lot about how the virtual world, the online world, is kind of transforming things, whether it's we're streaming more things and watching more things at home, or whether or not we're tapping our medical community through telemedicine. I mean, there is also remote therapy, right? And we're seeing demand, as you write it in your story, that has spiked.
4: And actually, yeah, that in, though, in- Cynthia, that I wanted to ask is, You know, how how is the quality of that uh, care viewed by the industry?
7: I mean, for most, Pete, for much, much of mental health care can be done remotely. There are some things where it gets a little bit harder. Um, I've been told that more serious cases of autism, for example, remote therapy may not be the answer. Um, for onset of things that may be more problematic, psychosis, schizophrenia, this may not necessarily be the answer. There are people who can't get onto teletherapy. We can't forget that a lot of people don't have access to wireless or Internet quite the same way and there are people whose care need to be done, say detox, that kind of thing has to be done in person. And so there's this other knock-on problem. So while teletherapy will answer a lot of people's problems for the near term and especially people who are going through something that is a little more situational in nature and will sort of work itself out as life resumes to normal eventually, for people who have more serious conditions, we do have situations where there are psychiatric units and hospitals that have had to stop accepting new patients because someone on the ward came down with COVID and that becomes a problem because that's where you start to see this backlog of people who may need to enter the system, not
0: having an entry point. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Listen, guys, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And it's a really important story, um, and we'll put it out on Twitter as well. Cynthia Coons, U.S. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone in New York, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, on the phone in Brooklyn. And, Jason, it is something that's come up with a lot of our conversations uh, with the medical community about, you know, I've been seeing from colleagues and, 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 you know, various individuals about this feeling of isolation. And, you know, it's not just one stress, it's worried about, first of all, you're alone. You're in, your whole world has been turned upside down. Your routine has been turned upside down. You're worried about the virus. You're worried about your family. Um, you're worried about maybe your job. Yep. Um, it's just one thing after another.
1: And I do think this uncertainty of how long it's going to last mm-hmm. really contributes to that because it gets pushed out and pushed out and pushed out, and sort of you you sort of get these rays of false hope that okay, it's going to be. And and I think most of us knew it wasn't going to be Easter, but you sort of thought, oh okay, uh, maybe that's going to happen. Yeah. You see different uh, people making predictions, it's hard to get your head around the science. And then you see something like that press conference yesterday, and you start to think about the numbers. It is quite uh, overwhelming, to say the least. You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek, Jason Kelly and Carol Masser. Well, throughout the week, throughout the past few weeks, we have been trying to go to a well-sourced, well-educated, frontline doctor to help us understand what's going on this from a medical perspective, because ultimately, Carol Masser, Mm -hmm. this is a medical crisis at its core. Uh, We're happy to have with us, and and really grateful to have with us now, Dr. Jay Hawkins, Jr. Urgent and Acute Ambulatory Care Physician and Managing Medical Director at Centene Corporation, joining us on the phone from New York City. We know that New York, from living here in the tri-state area, is the epicenter of all this. Dr. Hawkins, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So give us a state of play here in New York City. What are you seeing uh, day-to-day? What's new and different uh, today, the first day of April?
6: I think what I'm seeing uh, is that definitely just on the front lines, we're seeing less people coming into the urgent care setting just for routine testing, which is a really good thing. Um, we're actually seeing more patients that have symptoms consistent with COVID-19 infection. And those are the people that we're seeing uh, coming in uh, most frequently now.
1: And and what do you owe that? So you owe that, I, I, I assume reading into what you're saying, is that people are starting to listen to, you know, the public health warnings, what the mayor is saying and others, and and really sort of reserving the medical care uh, from the brave folks like you for the folks who really need it.
6: Right. I think that's definitely what we're seeing and experiencing. And it's just it's a really good thing, too, just from keeping the volumes of people that are out at these urgent care facilities and emergency rooms from for being uh preventing them from being exposed to the disease process if they don't have it. Um, So definitely, I say originally about three weeks ago, we were seeing a lot uh, more patients that had questions or concerns about possible COVID-19 positive people that they had associated with or were close in contact with that were just coming in without symptoms just to be checked. But now the, the bulk of the patients that we're seeing definitely have the you know, most common symptoms of either shortness of breath or the dry cough.
0: You know, it's interesting, too, in in the update today um, out of New York, there are younger adults in New York City that are being hospitalized with the virus at surprisingly um, uh, high rates. Um, And I'm just curious what you're seeing in terms of some of the trend lines.
6: Right. Well, definitely still, we do see a a certain part of the population, you know, we're seeing an increased rate uh, with elderly people still. But in addition to that, younger people with uh, comorbid conditions, I'd say the number one condition that I see the most that people have pre-existing that are uh, showing up with COVID-19 symptoms is asthma. Um, so definitely uh, patients, younger people in the ages of 20s, 30s, Um, early 40s with pre-existing conditions uh, noted for asthma or even exertional asthma, people that say that they get asthmatic, asthma-like symptoms when exercising only, um, those are the patients that I've seen uh, with uh, more severe symptoms uh, in the urgent care practice and setting.
1: You know, Dr. Harkins, one of the things about this disease that, that certainly even those of us who aren't on the front lines like you seem to have learned is it's pretty indiscriminate in terms of income in uh, and, and many cases. Uh, what are you seeing as you go a level down in terms of sort of the socioeconomic uh, breakdown? Who's more vulnerable? Because we do think of this world, uh, unfortunately, realistically, as, as one of haves and, and have-nots.
6: Sure. Uh, In clinical practice and just from the latest demographic information we have from uh, the New York City Department of Health, we know that this disease process is impacting uh, some of our uh, heavier uh, communities that have heavier minority involvement. So, for instance, the number one county uh, currently in New York City, uh, as far as death rates go, is uh, in Queens, which Mm. has about... 74% a seventy four percent of the population in Queens are consist of minority groups, either asian american hispanic american or african american um so that's definitely something we see and I think if you marry that to the picture that we know of historically minorities having disproportionately lower access to health care uh it kind of sets up the perfect storm for minorities to uh you know have to deal with something. Um, a little bit different and uh, more extenuating than larger majority groups in society.
0: I want to ask you, you know, what changed in in you think in our world when it comes to the virus? And I'm, I'm I'm asking you because certainly after the president and the coronavirus task force update last night, where the president talked about you know, you know, get ready for several weeks of pain coming up, and and that as many as you know, 240,000 Americans could die from the virus, Um, I think everybody was thinking it was a very, very different tone, perhaps, than what we've heard, certainly from the president and from others. But what changed when you saw some of the metrics that they went through on a national level?
6: I think uh, just the sheer number, you know, uh, around it is something that's impacting people, I don't think most people living currently you know, in our society, especially millennials or other demographics that comprise a large part of our society, have ever experienced something like this. I think the most, most people can liken it to could possibly be the AIDS epidemic in the early 1980s. But even then, we didn't have such real-time access to numbers and statistics and such uh, types of day-to-day informative pieces around it. Um, Also, I think the real-time impact is coming from the fact that everyone seems to either know someone who's uh, tested positive for COVID-19 or, in some instances, know someone that's died from COVID-19, you know, infection. So I think that being said, it's just all of that type of real-time information that's really informing people and making them take uh, the severity of this condition as it should be.
1: So, Dr. Hawkins, I want, if if I may, in the last couple of minutes that we have with you, just just to ask you about sort of how you're doing, how your team is doing. Uh, you know, we we hear a lot about the system uh, being stressed, and and part of it is because you guys are human beings. I mean, you're dealing with this on a scale uh, as you've been alluding to that none of us have ever seen before. Maybe none of us anticipated. Saying, how are you holding up? How's the team holding up?
6: I think I'm holding up pretty well. Um, my team is just, it's a great team of physicians that work for CityMD uh, in New York City. Um, you know, I think that we're, we're actually concentrating more of our efforts in the outer boroughs and the places that are most heavily impacted, such as Queens and the Bronx and in Brooklyn and upper Manhattan, and we're redistrib- re- redistributing uh, our physician capacity to cover those sites more heavily. So that being said, I think that the group that I'm working with is really making a huge dent on the impact of it, and I'm just excited to continue working with them during that.
0: Just got about 45 seconds left here. What what more assistance do you think that we need from the federal government at this point?
6: Well, I guess the national concern that I could see that everyone has is just, you know, the level of support around producing uh, personal protective equipment I think that as much of that that we can get deployed as soon as possible will just help uh, everyone immensely. Uh, Also the concern around ventilator capacity and just the number of ventilators that are available you know just from my practice experience we do see people that are in active need of you know means of assistance with breathing And given the numbers that have been shared with everyone, you know, on a public forum about the number of ventilators that are needed, it's just something that I think we should definitely get out there and have made present more so than ever.
0: Well, Dr. Jay Hawkins, thank you so much for your time. I know it's a very stressful time, and you've got a lot on your mind and a lot that you've got to take care of. So thank you for giving us that update. Do take care. Dr. Jay Hawkins, he's Urgent and Acute Ambulatory Care Physician and Managing Medical Director at Centene Corporation, joining us on the phone from New York.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.